Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And sitting across from me today is a man who played with both punk legend Stiv Baders and new wave artist Strange Advance. His name is <laughs> David Quentin Steinberg. David, how are you, man? I'm well. Thank you for having me, Brent. Thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. It's great to see you. I'm really excited. So we got a lot to talk about, man. Yeah. So on one hand, Stiv Baders. Yes. On the other hand, Strange Advance, The Jitters, and before Stiv, The Mods. Yeah. Let's talk about that. They were all different kind of phases of life. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and yeah, they don't really match up or make a lot of sense. I don't think any of my musical life really does. Okay. Um, because it's all mixed genre and... Uh, mixed approach. Yep. Um, there were certain experiences I liked more than others, but yeah, they don't all make sense when you kind of put them together in a basket. Yeah, that's true. So, so how did you, you know, you're, you're a Toronto guy. How did you get mixed up with Stev Baders? Um, that one was, was really interesting. We were, uh, playing the mods yeah. in 1978. Mm -hmm. We were doing a club called the Turning Point, okay. which was a really cool little punk club at avenue road and bluer mm -hmm. baders was there he was in town visiting cynthia ross who was his girlfriend at the time she was from toronto okay. in a band called the b girls and Stephen lecky from the vile tones was also there that night wow. when we went up to do our encore i think we did tell me by the rolling stones oh nice both stiv and Stephen Leckie came on stage oh. and sang with us, which was which was fun, you know, cool. and hilarious. Mm -hmm. Then Baders came and saw us play the mods again in January, I think of seventy nine. This time he approached me mm -hmm. after the show. He was stumbling drunk. <laughs> I could barely <laughs> understand what he was saying, but he was talking about doing a solo album. Okay, and I was a big Dead Boys fan. I loved the Dead Boys. But he was talking about doing the solo album in California and he had this idea of getting all these guests on it. Mm -hmm. You know, Cook and Jones from the Sex Pistols, Jerry Knoll and Johnny Thunders from New York Dolls, etc. And, uh, would I like to come and play on some tracks? And I said, yeah, yeah, that sounds cool. So I graduated high school, got on a plane and, um, barely graduated high school, <laughs> but I did got on a plane to West Hollywood and spent the summer. Uh, recording with Stiv. Wow. And all those other guest stars, they never really panned out. Ah. Like Joan Jett came around a couple of times and there would be various visitors to the, uh, to the bungalow guys from Sham 69 when mm -hmm. they were in town. Didi Ramon was always around, but the guest appearance thing never, never came to fruition. So it just ended up being us a group of four of us that ended up doing this album called Disconnected in, in September. And then after that, so I'm thinking chronologically, he had left the Dead Boys. He had not started the Lords of the New Church yet. No. Our band was kind of funny because when I joined, the Dead Boys were, were starting to fall apart. Mm -hmm. So guys were leaving. And the only original members by the time I got there were Stiv and Jimmy Zero who was my slightly psychotic roommate when we toured <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I was, you know, 19 years old, 18, oh, wow. 19, I was very young. 
all those guys are way older than me. Bader's was 11 years older than me. Mm-hmm. And um, we we did the Disconnected record. Then Jimmy left. So it really was now this, just the Stiv Bader's band. And uh, we toured uh, with that group. We toured the album. Then by uh, December 1980, I guess it was, Brian James joined us from The Damned. And uh, we we played together, I don't know, it might have been a couple of months then that thing just kind of fell apart and Stiv and Brian put together Lords of New Church. I had an invitation to move to London and join the Lords with those guys. Oh. Um, but I, I turned it down because there were, it, it was too crazy. I can imagine that, you know, there were drug issues and all kinds of stuff that I really wanted to avoid. And I was, 20 years old at the time and i thought you know what i'll, I'll get off the train now this is good it's and incredible that you that, that you had that much wherewithal as a 20 year old kid yeah right <laughs> well, not many of us can say that we, we that we would have had the wherewithal to the presence of mind to make that decision yeah um, it's it's funny i've talked to people including band members mm-hmm. um about what i was like back then because you don't you don't remember <laughs> it's 40 years ago yeah i was recently talking to uh teresa kariakis who was our photographer so i i saw her recently at the uh premiere of the stiv uh movie documentary in cleveland mm-hmm. so i said teresa what was i like i'm really curious like what what was going <laughs> these guys are friggin crazy what was i like and she said well you were the most rational reasonable um, and best behaved. Oh. And I was like, you're, she's probably right. I was probably more of an observer than a participant. Mm-hmm. I sure as hell laughed a lot. <laughs> there was a lot to laugh about. I'm sure. But whatever sort of rationality I had in my personality, you know, was probably there when I was a kid too. Mm-hmm. Even though I had fun acting like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> with the rest of them and boy were we idiots yeah that was the worst behaved period in history i think for for young people the late late 70s mm-hmm. young people people in their 20s rock and roll bands yeah there was no aids there were a lot of drugs flying around it was all the post hippie kind of thing that's right and there was sort of a, a an aggression almost like a, a darkness to the behavior is that a Vietnam thing, do you think? A Vietnam War? I don't know because I wasn't old enough to understand that. But the guys who I played with certainly were. Mm-hmm. They were old enough to remember buying their first album, their first album being an Elvis Presley record. They were in Catholic school. They got their knuckles wrapped by nuns. Yeah. You know, Stiv used to get in trouble for having hair on his collar, mm. you know, in high school. So they're old enough to have gone through those kinds of experiences. So I don't know where it came from, but I just, I just remember the late seventies as being a period where people behaved badly, you know, drunk driving, you weren't worried about drunk driving because you could kill yourself or other people. You were worried about it because, you know, you could get caught, just, just stay in the right hand lane and go slowly. (laughs) You know, that was the period. And I look at it now and I go, my God. People behaved terribly. I can't believe so many of them made it through and didn't die in the process. Yeah. But at the same time, it was a nice period to be (laughs) playing music (laughs) and it was a nice period to be touring and there was a lot of fun going on. Oh, I'm sure. 
I'm sure. It was it, good. That was just a great time musically too. You know, I, I think about, I've said this before from 75 to like 82. Yeah. It's just like the rock that was, that was out there at that time. Like the punk bands coming in and wiping out bands like Air Supply and Ario Speedwagon, <laughs> right? It was just a really exciting time for music. And it was also so political. Yes. I don't mean political in the sense of politics. I mean musical politics. Yeah. It was a period where people were judged mm-hmm. by what they listened to. They were judged by which records they bought and had in their homes. Hmm. Especially if you were you know, a punk or new wave person. Yeah. You were supposed to like the MC five and the New York dolls and the stooges and, you know, and all the other new bands and the damned and the pistols and clash and blah, blah, blah. You weren't supposed to be into Genesis. There was, so there was always that kind of thing. And those politics extended to the street, Mm -hmm. young people, high schools, you know, the kids that were into punk, the kids that were into heavy rock, they mm-hmm. hated each other. Really? If you were into disco, forget it. Mm. You could have started World War III yep. if you put all those kids together. It was very political. It's not like now where go to your average teenager and they probably listen to music from all kinds of genres. They don't care. It wasn't quite like that for us. There was there there was a political element to what you liked and what you backed and whether you were a sellout. Oh, yeah. You know all that stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrible. Well, I, early 80s, I remember that. I was, I was a kid in high school, and there was delineation. You know, if, yeah. you, if you were a Metallica fan, you could not be a, a Madonna fan, for exactly. example. And you could be ridiculed for being a Metallica fan. Or beaten up. Oh, absolutely. I remember sitting in the Tropicana um, in, in 1980, mm-hmm. and Didi Ramon was visiting us he lived there too they were doing end of the century with uh, phil specter at the time and we got an offer to do 11 dates with black sabbath opening for black sabbath wow in italy and didi overheard us talking about this and he got very very animated and he said you know in his voice don't do it they'll kill you and I was like, what do you mean they'll kill us? Well, the Ramones had opened for Ted Nugent oh. and had faced a, a lot of bottles being thrown at them and, and garbage. And yeah, people were trying to kill them. <laughs> it wasn't like Ted Nugent fans. And forget about Ted Nugent and who he is now. In the 70s, he was just a heavy rock guy. It wasn't like Ted Nugent fans would go, oh, isn't this cool? The Ramones, a new wave band or a punk band. Isn't this interesting? Let's give this a chance. No, it was let's kill them. <laughs> you know? So we were like, no, we're not doing those dates, especially in somewhere, a place like Italy where, where we are unfamiliar, yeah. you know, unfamiliar with the country and the fans and, and what Black Sabbath fans may have been, might have been like in Italy it was like, no, we're not doing that, man. Cause <laughs> I had had situations where stuff was thrown at bands I was in. And in fact, in 1978, I was hit with a uh, quart of beer oh, wow. uh, in the head oh. in Ottawa when we were in the mods. I was counting in a song and I was kind of looking down and bang. So I was in the hospital. Jeez. The Ottawa Journal had a had a little article, a little report on it. Yeah. And interestingly enough, it it was not a a, a punk fan or or anything like that that did it. 
it was a guy who was known to police locally mm. who literally walked into the club. It was called the Black Swan, mm-hmm. picked up off a table a patron's quart of full beer, oh. threw it at the stage, mm-hmm. and walked out. So he wasn't even there for the for the gig. Mm. It was literally just a random assault. So yeah, things could get really, really nasty. And there were a lot, lots of fights and things like that in, in, in all the punk clubs. At a certain point, it got really out of control. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't good. It was like you knew at the end of the night something was going to happen. You know, they'd pack a lot of people into these places and you just knew something was going to happen. The Edge was good. Nothing like that ever happened at the Edge. Nothing at the Horseshoe. But mm-hmm. some of the other clubs, you know, things would go bad. It was a funny, funny period. When I was playing with Stiv, the worst thing that would happen is, you know, you might get some spit that landed on you. Yeah. <laughs> so you had the benefit, though, of being back behind the drums. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. You know, with the exception of that goofball who threw the well, beer at you. Yeah. The pro- I mean, Baders used to just surrender. He, he knew that some spit was going to come, so yeah. he didn't care. He would stand at the front of the stage and just sort of take it, and I would sit in the back <laughs> thinking, don't hit me, don't hit me. But I got hit a couple times. I got hit, and it, it's, it was brutal. It's, you know? I just I, I cannot conceive of that now. You know, could you like it's funny because you know I understand the time and and, and all yeah. of it, but like now think about yourself spitting on somebody <laughs> that I sl- spitting in a band. <laughs> yeah, I know it's pretty great. Well, you know there was some weird stuff that came out of the punk scene. Oh, for sure. You know, and all the punk scenes were different mm-hmm. in New York and Detroit and Chicago and London. They were all very different scenes, mm-hmm. even though there might have been some musical overlap. You know, obviously London was, was very political and music was often political. Um, New York, not so much. Toronto, not so much. It was more about, more about the music, stripping it down, uh, making it accessible, giving an opportunity to young people. Yeah. Um, and the, the Garys, uh, Gary Top and, and Gary Cormier were absolutely groundbreaking in that regard. Mm-hmm. You know, we would, we would go to them at the horseshoe. I guess would, is where it would have started. And, you know, we were 17 years old and saying, hey, hi, can our band play? And they were like, yeah. Oh, wow. And they would put you on as an opening act. And if you were good enough and started drawing people before you knew it, you'd be a headlining act. They didn't care. Whereas all the other bars and clubs mm-hmm. in those days, it was cover bands long-haired guys with bell bottoms and platform shoes playing rolling stones and whatever all the stuff not that we hated the music but the concept of those cover bands and those bars we hated them Mm -hmm. absolutely hated them whereas everything on the on the punk new wave side it was original music it was accessible it was exciting it was aggressive in your face yeah which is what it should be with young people and it was almost like a back to basics kind of reboot, right? Of it all really the, was. All the stadium nonsense and the, the silliness just kind of got crushed by this onslaught of people wanting just kind of a return to natural, good, dirty rock. Exactly. I remember watching um, a TV special of Elton John performing in Central Park. Mm-hmm. This would have been in the probably the early 80s. And he dressed up as Donald Duck and he came out in this 
Donald Duck uh, costume sitting at the piano and he was playing his song, Your Song, which is a beautiful, beautiful song, you know, that he, he wrote with Bernie Toppin. And, and he's playing the song and in certain lines he started quacking. Oh. You know, he was going, if I was a sculptor, quack, literally. Really? And I'm like, man, that is the end. Like, this is the end. Like, we have to get rid of all these guys. They all need to go. Mm-hmm. That's how we felt. And that's where the ethos of punk comes from. Really. Yeah. I, I truly believe that. Yeah. You know? And that arrogance that you can't play. You're just a kid. You can't play. That's right. And like, go to hell. Or, or with the Ramones, the big, big thing with the Ramones when they came out is no guitar solos. Mm-hmm. Well, if they can't play guitar solos... How, how can they be a band? They're not a real band. The, the hilarious irony of that is try to play downstrokes on a guitar and bass for 45 minutes yeah. the way Dee Dee and Johnny did and see how long you last as a, a decent musician. Try it. See yeah. how long. See if you can play those eighth notes on the hi-hat like Marky and Tommy did. Mm-hmm. See how long you last as a good musician. Yes. Those are very difficult things to do, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, they weren't playing like Emerson, Lake and Palmer, but they had their own skill and talent that was coming out through that music. Yeah. You know? And it was pure. Yeah. Yeah. And cool. Very cool. <laughs> well, it was just fresh. Yeah. You know, and it was real. People hated them. Yeah. I mean, the press hated them. Other, other bands would laugh at them. Do you agree, though, Dave, that people hated them because they were afraid of them? I think that was a huge part of it. Yeah. Huge part. That's of it. what I think. It's, listen, if you were in a, in a long-haired band and, and doing reasonably well, and all of a sudden these, these guys come up, yeah, that's a little bit scary. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember Bowie saying some stuff about it. He had a very different um, take on it, Bowie. First of all, he was one of the people that sort of investigated it. He went to CBGBs. He mm-hmm. saw Devo. He did all that stuff. But I remember an interview with him where he was saying, in so many words, these guys aren't that scary. They all want to be rock stars. Mm. Every one of them. Mm. And he was probably right. <laughs> so he was kind of saying, yeah, they're political. They're all trying to be rock stars. And I think for a guy like Bowie, it must have been incredibly strange because he saw so much of himself and and the glam influence coming out in punk because glam was huge in the punk development phase. Yes. You know, I even remember when punk was really, really happening, you were supposed to basically worship Mark Bolin from T-Rex, mm. David Bowie, Slade would have had really? a lot of respect yeah, glam stuff. And the dolls were sort of like the link. Well, that's they it. Had, they had glam, but they also had that sound yeah. that so many bands kind of started copying. Yeah, that's interesting. They would be the missing link between those two Completely. ideals. Yeah. You know, it's very, very interesting. And Alice Cooper as well. Yes. There were a lot of punk bands, new wave bands, et cetera, that, that were into Alice Cooper. Jim yeah. Morrison. To a degree, I could see that too. But mm-hmm. Alice Cooper, definitely, I could see that because Big there was time. A, kind of an androgynous thing going on, but also the music is completely untethered. Like, you yeah. listen to those early records. They're great. You know, they're great. But they, like, again, Alice Cooper, it's like he's saying, you know what? If you don't like this, I don't give a shit. Oh, yeah, totally. It's, right? it, it's a complete, uh, complete, you know, sort of fuck you attitude oh, yeah. that Alice had. Um, 
and that and that came through all that music. So when you reverse engineer that period, yeah. it's Detroit MC5 Stooges, yes. it's New York New York Dolls, it's uh well even Alice had a bit of Detroit happening even oh, though they were a lot. Phoenix band and you know went to West Hollywood. Yeah. But yeah, all of that kind of uh came into a, a mishmash. And of course when we talk about punk and we're talking about 1977, 76, 78, whatever. It was all different types of music. Mm-hmm. The only, it wasn't mohawks and people playing at 150 miles an hour, slathered in tattoos. That's not what it was. Mm-hmm. It was Patti Smith. It was television. Yeah. It was Dead Boys. It was The Police. It was Squeeze. And listen, it produced its own rock stars. Mm-hmm. You know, Blondie made it. The Cars made it. There were bands that came out of those scenes and, and actually really, really succeeded. It's interesting to consider kind of how that music morphed right around that time into things. You, you mentioned the police into, you know, new romanticism. Yes. You know, from that scene. It's, I, I'm fascinated with the genealogy of how that all works, you know, and how bands are influenced by what came before them, but then they create something different. Like the police, you know, had kind of ska reggae thing going on. Yeah but contributed to new romanticism as did Elvis Costello, who could, could, could be considered punky. Um, you know, so it's really interesting to kind of see all of that yeah, develop. And, it sure is. And, and I mean, when that new romantic stuff happened, I, I found it very funny because it was like, we're going back to that glam thing. Mm-hmm. And there are all these bands that have singers that want to be David Bowie or Brian Ferry. It was all there again. Yeah. You know, the guy in Spandau Ballet was Bowie and Ferry. Exactly. The guys in, in, uh, what was that band, Hungry Like the Wolf? Duran Duran. Duran. You know, it's all Bowie, Bowie, Bowie. That's right. And Brian Ferry. And yeah. it's, so it kind of came back a little bit. And I suspect that it did because it was more marketable. Yeah. So a lot of those guys might have said, okay, look, the punk thing's great and everything like that. But if we're ever going to have any real success, any marketability, we got to turn that shit down. Yes. And hey, how about this? Mm-hmm. I always liked Ziggy Stardust and the, and the spiders from Mars. I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. And then you know? Bowie went the other way. Yeah. With Let's Dance, Modern Love, China Girl. It completely. Right? So it's just, it's fascinating yeah. to, to watch all of these things. Uh, kind of progress sure is yeah and then and then when grunge came it was like you know recapturing some of the punky edge but now with long-haired guys i've said that a million times people are are probably sick of hearing me say that uh, grunge was an overcorrection for hair metal bands yeah really that's it grunge was punk i think very punky yeah produced some great bands that seattle stuff is insane how many mm-hmm. great groups came out of there yeah at least i liked them but again, it was just, it was kind of the pendulum going back the other way. Yeah. Right? Things got really silly with those big hair bands, like, you know, Danger, Danger and Poison and all the rest of it. Yeah. And kids just said, look, we got to, it's, it's reboot time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the flannel came on and the shoegazing started and, <laughs> and that was it. I think it's, it's insincerity in music mm-hmm. that causes those little explosions. Mm-hmm. And when you were singing about nothing, all you're doing is singing about girls. Mm-hmm or boys or whatever relationships and you're not saying anything there's mm-hmm. nothing interesting in the words that's the beginning of of the cause of a rebellion because yeah. people smell the insincerity i remember as a teenager listening to a um 
interview on the radio with the guys from a band, Toto. Yeah. And they had had these huge hits and they were all studio guys. And they were being interviewed by a smart ass interviewer mm. who was coming at them and saying, this song over here, what's that about? <laughs> and the guy was going, well, it's your basic boy girl song. And I was yeah. like, this one over here, what's this one about? Well, it's relationships and, you know, boys and girls. Basically, they're singing about nothing. Yeah. Now, if I go upstairs and turned on television, Marky Moon, and took out the the insert, the inner sleeve, and read Tom Verlaine's lyrics, and then I'm hearing these schmoes from Toto talking about their boy-girl songs, yeah. hey, there it is, <laughs> right? That's the explosion, the rebellion, exactly. and, you know, basically drawing distinction the distinction between sincere and and real versus complete utter commercial caca yeah right yeah with all due respect fascinating love the study of the of the music genealogy i used to work with a i was signed to a record company where the guy used to talk about someone being the real thing mm. or the real deal mm-hmm and when he first used to say it, I was like, what, what, what is he talking about? Like, I, I, I don't understand. Well, what I came to understand is what he was talking about, which is, you want to know who the real deal is? You can like them. You can hate them. You can like some of it. You can hate some of it. Neil Young. Mm. It's the real deal. Mm-hmm. Because he does what he wants to do. There's a sincerity about it. There's a realness about it. There's a quality to it. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with anything genre specific. There are other artists like that as well. Oh, yeah. Right? But there are a hell of a lot that got success that are not that. Yes, absolutely. And it's always fascinating to see who the real artists are. Yeah. Versus the sort of more plastic or fake artists. And again, I have no problem with any of it. Anybody's entitled to make a living. Anybody's entitled to be a rock star and anybody's entitled to make a lot of, uh, to have a lot of success. Yeah. I'm, I'm not judgmental about it. I'm just not going to listen to it. Yeah. No, n- nor I. And right. why should I have to? There are millions of other people that will. It's all cool. Yeah. I think people are more concerned these days with being famous, not necessarily being good. You know, it's Kings uh, Zero was in here the other day and he said that. He said, you know, back in the day, people were more concerned about being good. You know, we talked about the 10,000 hours that's required to really kind of get out there and make it happen for yourself. Mm-hmm. Whereas now if so many shortcuts are taken, people just want to be famous. They don't really care about the quality of music anymore. And again, you know, you and I were joking earlier with Chris Tate saying, we're all old men shaking our fists about get off my lawn. <laughs> get off my lawn, you kids. <laughs> I don't know that it's pe- that people didn't care about being famous back then. I think they did. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't agree with that. But you had to um, hone your skills mm-hmm. because that was the point of entry. Nowadays, the point of entry is nothing. You don't need anything. Mm-hmm. You can literally press a button. Mm-hmm. You can buy beats from someone. You can do whatever. There's no point of entry. I think what he was talking about, Zero, is is that point of entry. You had to be good. You had to practice. You had to have skill yeah. or no one was going to listen to you. Yeah. And if you didn't, and if you didn't have incredible skill, you had to have something else to offer, something interesting to offer. A gimmick. But these days, because of the way technology is, the digital age, social media, yeah, you can be famous for doing nothing. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you can be famous, uh, well, Kim Kardashian or whatever those kind of people. Yeah, that's really, really weird and alienating to people like us mm-hmm. because I would say, I'm not going to say 100%, but probably 95% of the people that were famous when we were kids, they were famous because they had a skill, yes, a really tremendous skill. One of the saddest things to me, and, and I know it sounds you know, like an old guy complaining, is when I think about uh, female artists, mm-hmm. and I think about the female artists that had success when we were kids, whatever, Joni Mitchell, Carly Simon, like you can name a whole bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Would any of them st- have stood a chance in this day and age when you have to behave a certain way? dress a certain way, act a certain way, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't have stood a chance. You know, it's just about as much about your bum as it is about your talent. Yeah. I kind of liked the old days when women weren't kind of forced to be in those boxes and and perform like that and behave like that. And I guess it's not 100% of the time, but it's an awful lot. Yeah. I was just watching an old clip of Joni Mitchell playing at this huge festival. Her voice is cracking all over the place. She's wearing some crappy old dress. No makeup, nothing. Right. But that's that's the good stuff. Right. That's real. Whereas nowadays, they'd want her to be in girlicious. <laughs> <laughs> or the, right. the pussycat dolls. Exactly. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's just, it freaks me out. And then, of course, there is the the music itself and forget about anything that we might say about uh, certain types of music, but the millennial whoop, which mm. you might know a little bit about the musical motif that inhabits all of these pop songs, these very famous pop songs, mm-hmm. the the four notes, the, Oh, Oh, oh yeah. which you hear in all the pop songs or variations of that. Mm-hmm. Do you not want to take two forks and stab your fucking eyes out? Yes, I do. I know exactly. That to me is like, are you, you know, you guys think this is good because you're hearing the same thing over and over and over again Mm -hmm. by the same producers, the same 15 people that write these songs. That is the sad part to me. Yeah. Because when I compare that to being 14 years old and getting really excited, uh, about the new Who album coming out or about Diamond Dogs coming out or whatever. Mm-hmm. I compare those two experiences, you know, the way people consume and listen to music now versus then. That to me is sad. Yeah. Nothing you can do about it, but it is sad. It is sad. No, I completely agree with you. On the bright side, I spoke at Ryerson a little while ago to a bunch of 20 year old kids and I was expecting to hear a lot of that. Yeah. But one of the women uh, put her hand up and I was talking about, you know, skin vibration, that the, the music that really kind of, you know, has an emotional pull on you. And she said, you know, one of the, one of the songs for me and I was thinking, like, what's this going to be? And she said, Van Morrison's Into the Mystic. And I oh, said, okay. how old are you? Yeah. And she said, I'm 20. Right. And I said, bless your heart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. So it's not all bad. No. And I think, uh, I think a lot of the kids like various types of music. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the, the kind of tragedy. And I'm sure people said this when the big band era came to an end as well. Mm-hmm. People get forgotten. 
Yeah. Bands get forgotten. Mm -hmm. Artists get forgotten. And some of them are so brilliant and are so great. But it's gone. It's over. Yes. And that's hard for our generation to accept. But I'm sure our parents felt the same way. Mm -hmm. It's that what? Nobody's listening to Rosemary Clooney anymore. No one's listening to Benny Goodman, to Tommy Dorsey. Mm -hmm. It's like, who are they? Yeah. I'm sure my parents feel the same way. Oh, yeah. I do now. When I say, what? You've never heard of Spirit? You've never heard the album 12 Dreams of Dr. Sardonicus? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's the same thing. And, yeah. and that's just every generation and every generation is entitled to get its own music and, yeah. and, and develop its own musical culture. But boy, there's some great stuff that gets forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. How right. many people know who Johnny Winter is? I don't know. Not many. It's Ed- sad. Edgar Winter as well. Well, right? yeah, who knows Edgar? So it's, it's, uh, you know, people do, but they're all my age. Well, there might be those pockets of, of curious. Yeah. You know, like I said, that, that 20 year old, I was just so, you know, I was, I was happy to see that because there was a, I could tell there was a real appreciation for going back and looking at, dare I say, real music. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, in my family, I'm encouraged because my 23 year old loves all kinds of really cool stuff and he's, he's always digging down and trying to learn about things. And my 18 year old, you know, he really likes Kendrick Lamar, but one of the reasons he likes him so much is his lyrical content. Mm-hmm. He's a brilliant social commentator. The, he's taking a lot of, a lot of care. He showed me some of the lyrics one day and I said, you know, he's kind of like the Bruce Springsteen of hip hop. Mm. There's a very interesting thing going on there. Really? The guy is a poet. I like the fact that my kid was into, into him or is into him because yeah. He's, he's seeing the quality in the, in the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're, uh, 37 minutes in. We have not even talked about. <laughs> You'll edit. <laughs> I will. <laughs> I got a big mouth. But no, but this and is I like great. to run it. <laughs> See, we could, e- we could easily do a four hour show. Right. Right. We oh, could yeah. Without. Totally. Without any effort. Um, all right, so clearly Mr. Quentin and I had a mammoth chat. Uh, I decided to cut it there. Come back next week when we actually find out what his songs are and uh, what his take is on those songs. All right, that wraps up part one with David Quentin Steinberg. This has been No Sleep Till Subbury with Brent Jensen. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Subbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>